You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What up, everybody? Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, and konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome to the Abacabo Cafe podcast. I am your host, Jason Almy, and I appreciate you very much for listening. Before we get into business today, I want to say big ups and thank you to Mr. Alan R. for joining the Patreon. He is our newest member. One of these years, I'm going to get around to thanking everybody that's a Patreon member. Thank you very much for supporting Team Almy Studios and bringing you this fine podcast that you're listening to right now, as well as several others. And I'll be sending out some swag to everybody who signs up, regardless of what tier you choose when you sign up to the Team Almy Studios Patreon. In today's podcast, we are going to be talking about Kimagure Orange Road TV episode 14, entitled A Foreboding Dream. Madoka and Kyosuke breaking up at last. This episode originally aired July 6th of 1987. It was directed by Matsuzono Hiroshi, who you might remember from the very strong episode 5, a problematic part-time job episode. Very strong work by Matsuzono there. He also directed episode 10, the Shikaru-chan is dying premonition dream. So... uh, pretty balanced over for for our director today and he's going to put in another strong effort no surprise everybody this episode was written by terada kenji you guys making the marks on the wall at home with the chalk or with like the 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 knife that you're like carving into the wood we're making uh an eighth mark okay this guy has written episodes one two three five eight ten twelve and now this episode episode uh 14 that's eight Of the first 14 episodes, you should have eight marks carved into the wall next to where you listen to this podcast as of today. That's almost 60%, rounds to 60% of episodes were written directly by Terada. No doubt for the other 40%, he was standing over the person's shoulder, like watching them as they wrote it, thinking, you better not screw this up for me, buddy. So show of hands right now, feel free to raise your hand. I won't see you. 
No one will see you except maybe the guy in the car next to you. Raise your hand. Do you guys think that Ayukawa and Kasuga are really going to break up with 34 episodes left? I hope you can hear the incredulity in my voice. I don't think they're breaking up. You don't think they're breaking up. Are we going to have fun with this episode anyway? The answer is yes. It's definitely a fun episode, even though nobody believes going into episode 14, you know we got 48 episodes on the table, plus eight OVAs, plus two movies. They're not breaking up in episode 14. So we get another foreboding dream. We have another dream opening, just like episode two opens with a dream. Uh, just like episode 10 opened with a dream, unlike episode two, uh, was not a foreboding dream. So so episode 10 and this episode here were, were both foreboding dreams. We now have the foreboding dream element that we had not uh, been introduced to as of yet at the beginning of episode two, the lemony kiss for her episode. So um, we, we have that now. So we have to suspect that anytime we're shown a dream of Kasuga's that it may likely be foreboding, at least in some sense. Now, the imagery we have here in this opening scene is common to the series at this point. It's it's a type of presentation that we should be uh, somewhat accustomed to, especially after episode 10's foreboding dream that began that episode. So we have uh, figures that kind of float through this dream space, just like in episode 10. Um, we don't have precise details of a setting. There's no floors. There's no background that really makes sense. Um, in this case, there's kind of the background of the cosmos, the stars, the Milky Way. And that's, of course, important to the mythology behind Tanabata, but it also kind of has this dreamlike quality, right? It has this sort of otherworldly abstraction. This is a very visually abstract scene, and it's meant to communicate more of Kasuga's emotional state as having this dream rather than like a precise uh, time and a place. Of course, the, the cosmos, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's the, the, the backdrop of the cosmos is a, an overt reference to Tanabata, which is a Japanese festival. It's celebrated annually. If you guys want to know more about that, Google that. There's very interesting Wikipedia pages with links and stuff like that. I don't want to take up too much time in the episode just talking about like the cultural background, but it's a very interesting read and it does give some context to this episode because some episodes are are um, not as heavy with, with the Japanese culture, but of course, this is a, a uniquely Japanese holiday that's not celebrated across the West. And so, unless you are a Japanese person, you are probably unfamiliar with Tanabata, but it is, it is definitely worthwhile to read a little bit into that holiday if you haven't yet. So without giving too much detail on that, the stars represent this cosmic distance between Kasuga and Ayukawa, they're sort of cast as these characters um, from, the, from the myth behind Tanabata, and, and the cosmos is meant to separate them. It's like this, this vast distance, this space. And, uh, and so th that's kind of brought into play in the dream to, to give the idea that Kasuga and Ayukawa are about to be separated. They're about to be uh, forced apart. They're breaking up at last. And so the episode is beginning uh, with that theme that's established in the title in mind. The traditional garb that the characters wear here, it's an indication that Kasuga's dream is connected to this myth of the cowherd and the weaver girl, and that it's it's got this um, maybe historical and, and, and cultural setting. Uh, but then 
it also kind of serves as a comedic device, right? Because as Koska is chasing after Ayuko in his dream, he trips over this long hem that he's wearing. And then as he falls, he becomes entangled with the, the garment flopping over his head and he can't see and he's yelling for Ayuko and it's just kind of this pathetic thing. But it's this comedic thing too, because he can't, he obviously can't maneuver in this. And it's, there's a certain irreverence. This is another example of this, you know, like new generation kind of undermining the, the mores of the older generations. And so, you know, they're, they're not so um, precious about, about some of these, the cultural elements. The, the fact that they're poking fun or lampooning little elements of their own culture kind of indicates this, this sort of tongue-in-cheek irreverence. I mean, they're not totally lighting the thing on fire, but they're giving you an idea that, uh, you know, the young generation isn't uh, afraid to take another look at some of these traditional cultural trappings. They make sure to include a line from Kasuga when he awakens about sleeping with his head at the foot of the bed. This kind of seems like a throwaway line. He's just sort of grumbling, but it's actually quite important because it contains this foreshadowing, which is, it's foreshadowing the key to Casca's conflict. The fact that he slept upside down, the content of his dream is, is presented to him in reverse or the opposite is true of the foreboding dream. So it's sort of like a um, opposite day in foreboding dreamland. Okay. Probably the best way to put it. Casca realizes that it could have been a foreboding dream. We cut to black and white as these ominous tones play in the background. He's sitting upright in bed at this point. I want to note that because that's going to come into play at the end of the episode again, when we're, we bookend again, like many of these episodes, we get a bookend. The, the, and kind of returns us to the beginning, reinforces some of the, or, or shows us again some of the things that occurred at the beginning um, and, and sort of wraps things up nicely. I mean, it's a common narrative technique of bookending uh, a story. And that happens in, in many Orange Road episodes, including this one. So we're going to bookend that morning of him waking up after the foreboding dream. So this is important stuff that we're going to return to. Apparently, not all of his dreams are foreboding, even nowadays, though. Otherwise, he wouldn't just wonder if he'd had one. He would know that he'd had a foreboding dream. So there must be some not non-foreboding dreams kind of sprinkled in, and it's hard for him to tell the difference. Also, it's kind of nice to see Casca do a little bit of exercise. We don't see him do a lot of recreational exercise, absent of a few kind of um, notable instances that are tied into the plot. We don't see him do a ton of exercise. And I there's a point to that. He's kind of a wimp, as we're about to, to see in this episode. But it's nice to see him take a little bit of concern with his own health. And I think that the fact that he's jogging near the beginning of this episode is kind of meant to show us that he has a little bit of a sense of pride, maybe a tiny sense of vanity. He's, he's doing a little something to take care of himself here. Now, apparently pro wrestling was quite popular in Japan in the 1980s. It was popular here in the West as well, particularly the U.S. in the 80s. So it was a thing apparently over there too. And this episode introduces female wrestling as a way of developing female power. It's very much about the female power. And, and I thought that was a very interesting element of this episode. So of course the twins dig it. They tend to gravitate towards things that that empower them. They they tend to gravitate towards empowerment in general, particularly Kurumi. 
uh, evidence of the younger generation kind of poised to take over. They're they're very interested in empowering themselves and 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 kind of coming into their own and taking over the reins. Ayukawa is also there. She's dominating. She's whipping ass. She's throwing people around. They're already connecting the idea of the female wrestling with the idea of this confident, self-assured female power. I mean, Ayukawa wasn't there to be sexy. The women in this scene are displayed as powerful, competent athletes. As Kasuga's looking around, he sees them all doing exercises and things. They all know what they're doing. They all seem like they're in the right spot. None of them seem out of place. They're shown as strong, confident. There's the sense that they're training for their own sense of gratification or for their own health or for their own empowerment. They're not training for male attention. They're not training to look a certain way in a bikini so that they can get a man to look at them. So in that sense, it's very positive. On the other side of that coin, there's this slight element of male fantasy here, right? Kasuga goes into this gym, kind of wanders in. After encountering his sisters there, he wanders in and it's like this gym's full of women. There's not a, another guy in there to be seen. Kasuga's looking around. And it's, like, it's like wandering into a buffet almost. They've got these tight 80s leotard you know, outfits, the spandex things. Not one of them, not one of the women in there exercising is wearing like a baggy sweatpants and a t-shirt or something. They're all dressed in the, the skin-tight spandex stuff that reminds you of something like the the... Olivia Newton-John video for physical or something like that. There is a sort of sex appeal to Kasuga here as well. I mean, they're all women who exercise, they're in shape. So the, the flip side of that coin, I mean, on the one hand, it is kind of a positive portrayal of this, but then on the other hand, it almost seems like it's presented as kind of a treat for Kasuga. Like, look at what kind of harem he's just wandered into, but that's about to be undermined. I mean, I think they set that up on purpose so that they can undermine that a little bit and, and sort of humiliate Kasuga here in the very beginning in front of this gym filled with women. And, you know, he wanders in thinking, hell yeah, but then it turns out uh, he's a total wimp and they're all there to witness it. I think it's it's constructed carefully and it's constructed um, with an intention to to establish Kasuga's a very real motivation for this episode. So Ayukawa in particular looks attractive to him. The camera follows his gaze up from her feet to her head as he takes in this sight of Ayukawa in a leotard. As he's looking up to her, she's on the canvas, on the wrestling canvas, and he's down on the floor. So he's kind of looking up at her. I mean, she's almost like a goddess in that, in that moment and in his eyes. And you get the impression that he very much looks at her like that, like She's almost literally on a pedestal. She's standing elevated above him as he gazes up at her. And so there is this sense that this is kind of a, a rare treat for Kasuga, but then it, it doesn't go so well. So this scene seems to be very much reinforcing the idea that physical strength, exercise, athleticism, even power aren't inherently masculine things. Females can embody these things that I mentioned, but they they also don't have to make themselves more masculine in order to obtain those things. So there's like a disconnect from the idea of like physical strength. It's not a male thing. Exercise is not a male thing. And you don't have to be a masculine female in order to excel at things like exercise or sports or athleticism juxtaposed with Kasuga's own athletic deficit. And I, I will say that Ayukawa's wrestling senpai is uh, drawn 
in a more masculine way. She's got shorter hair than even Kasuga. She's got kind of a square jaw that's been drawn in. She's literally wearing the pants. Everybody else has a leotard. She is the one person in this whole gym that has kind of a sweatpants look. Even when she gives Kasuga a friendly clap on the shoulder, it nearly knocks him over. And and Ayuko and Shikaru are there to witness it, much to Kasuga's complete embarrassment. Ayukawa and her senpai are giggling. It doesn't really help Kasuka's sense of his own masculine pride. And so due to his dream, which may be foreboding, Kasuka's already a little overly sensitive that this comes right after that. He he, he feels it acutely. Everything is going to seem to him like evidence that Ayukawa is going to dislike him, just like he witnessed in his dream. He's internalizing this relative weakness here. And he's feeling very emasculated. Ultimately, Kasuga feels rejected by this pro wrestling harem that he wandered into. Now, Kasuga initially objects to Kurumi and Manami's interest in female wrestling. Again, he conflates their value with their reproductive ability. This is uh, not the first time Kasuga has done this. This is kind of evidence of his his sexism that he's. I don't know if it's a, a sociocultural value that he's picked up somewhere, but again, Kasuga sort of is the mouthpiece for these mores of the older generation, and he does tend to attempt at least to enforce them upon his sisters to a lesser degree, Ayukawa, uh, as we saw in the very first episode. But they remind him that he's perpetuating uh, these mores, that, that that he's kind of being a square. And they remind him that Ayukawa wrestles too. So how can you possibly object to women wrestling when the girl you like does it for exercise as well. And I think this is proof that the authors are not expressing sexism here, that the sexism is limited to Kasuga, and it's part of his perspective that he does need to grow out of. And it's it's part of his arc, I like to think, and it's part of what he's going to, uh, how he's going to grow and mature as a person when he reaches his adulthood. And so I think that this is a learning experience for him too, that he goes into an episode like today thinking that wrestling is just going to completely ruin your ovaries and your 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 baby-making factory is going to be completely destroyed by wrestling, but he's going to learn that that's not the case and he's going to learn that wrestling is not like this inherently masculine thing, but that women can utilize wrestling as a uh, form of exercise as well, and 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 that it's perfectly valid in that way. And, and the authors never portray Ayukawa in a bad light, almost never, but certainly in this episode, Ayukawa is not portrayed in a bad light for her uh, sense of athleticism, particularly when it, when it comes to uh, like martial arts and even uh, pro wrestling. So for that reason, I don't believe the authors are are uh, voicing a sexist opinion here. And and even Kasuga Takashi, he tosses his paper aside, his newspaper. He's reading the paper, and he reveals that he's also in this wrestling costume. So he's consented to Kurumi and Manami uh, joining the wrestling club, and and he's into it as well. And so he's even undermining Kasuga. He's even telling Kasuga like, "Get with it. It's the '80s, bud. You know, don't be such a square." We get a really great. Uma and Ushko-san scene here. I get another scene where it's it's like um it's sort of built into the theme of the episode. In many of the episodes so far, Uma and Ushko are like part of the scenery. If they're at a park, there they are on a bench. Uh, when our when our characters are going through a restaurant, there they are at the restaurant. They up till now they've seemed like they're just kind of these recurring 
background characters who also live in the town uh, nearby the Koskas. They're in the Koskas building, I think, as established in episode one. But here, uh, just like with episode 10, they had their most meta appearance in episode 10 in, in Shikata's Daydream. But here they also have kind of one of their first appearances where they they sort of work into the theme of the episode and they show up kind of randomly in the gym. Ushko is is in her wrestling garb and she they go through their their motions and then as they're embracing, Ushko is like crushing Umal uh, with her strength that she's developed through her, her training regimen. And uh, um, and Umao is looking very, very uncomfortable being crushed. So this is like one of the first times that they're they're sort of being worked in for the audience, not the characters. Like the characters pay them no mind, like usual. I mean, it's not like Casca paid them any mind when he almost ran them over in the "Don't Ring the Wedding Bell" episode. He did. That's the whole gag, right? Is that he never pays them any mind. He he's always disrupting their lives. But here, it's like they're not even connecting with the characters. Like we just see Umal and Ushko and it's for the audience and it's not for the other characters to, to interact with. And there's going to be a lot of episodes in the future where uh, Umal and Ushko pop in like this and the other characters don't notice, they don't interact. And it's really just to kind of keep the audience guessing like, well, when are Umal and Ushko going to like pop out of something and what kind of crazy shit are they going to do this week? So, you know, the, the writers, the directors are getting a little bit more creative with how they uh, implement the Umal and Ushko gag. And uh, I think the show is growing for that because uh, we don't want to stagnate with, with this comedic gag. So because Umal is getting crushed and because Kasuga was, was uh, somewhat humiliated, we do get the sense that the men who interlope into this environment the female wrestling gym they suffer for it they they have there are consequences that they have to deal with for interloping and and thinking that maybe this space exists for them like it's their buffet but they learn the hard way via their physical consequences that this is not this is not their space the 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 rain on tanabata is an issue here um obviously this is part of the mythology um, but then the rain developing overhead reminds Kasuga of his dream in which it rained. So he's thinking for sure his dream is coming true. He's certain of it, and he's got to do everything he can to prevent it. So, of course, first and foremost, that means he's got to learn karate. What kind of shit is that? That is some Kasuga logic right, right there. We got this thing developing called Kasuga logic. I'm worried the girl I like might think I'm a doofus. What am I going to do? Go get my ass kicked at the karate club. That's what I'm going to go do. It's also part of a, a, a natural progression. Kasuga then embarrasses himself in front of a group of his female classmates with his poor attempts at self-taught martial arts. It's just part of this, this running gag, but it's part of his progression as well. And in Komatsu and Hata's first appearance in this episode, we see Hata blowing up a balloon again. This is a pretty consistent visual gag of Hata's. He he had one at the nightclub in episode, the rolling date episode. He had one again in another episode. He's holding it and the visual gag is is that it's like um looks similar to a condom and like what's he doing with a condom what's he expecting what what's going through this guy's mind but then it's also kind of connected to his arousal as sort of a metaphor cuz you know it inflates right what else of his might inflate and become engorged i mean and, and then um of course upon release 
uh, it, it becomes limp again. And so it's almost obscene that it lands like right on Kurumi's face, like right in between her eyes. Uh, every time I see that scene, I'm just like, wow, that's, uh, you know, like when the balloon is a metaphor for that, for his sexual arousal and then releasing it is this visual metaphor for ejaculation. And then you have it go plop right on Kurumi's face. I'm like, guys, uh, Wow, that's a little on the nose. I mean, literally, that was it was on Kurumi's nose and forehead. But uh, guys, I don't think you need to completely spell it out for us. I think we get it. Uh, but if you didn't think of the balloon in that way before now, thank you very much. Uh, please join the Patreon, okay? I'm working hard for the money. It must really suck for Yusaku that Shikaru admires Kasuga in his gi, and yet pays no mind. And Yusaku's always running around wearing his karate gi. And... and we get right back to the theme of this episode with the the female pro wrestling, that female kind of empowerment um, and dominance even with Shikaru smacking Yusaku with the Shinai because Yusaku hit Kasuga. On the one hand, it's comedic gold. Like Yusaku hits Kasuga. Okay, it's kind of funny. Kasuga's getting hit. And then bam, smash cut. Shikaru is wagging Yusaku. Like don't hit him. But it keeps in with the theme. I mean, not only is it kind of a funny gag, but, but it keeps with the theme established in the opening at the at the um, the female wrestling gym, women are on top today in today's episode. They are at the top of a hierarchy. It shows the futility of Costco trying to learn karate, right? Even a seasoned karate expert like Yusaku is physically dominated by Shikaru. But then it also places Shikaru at the top of this hierarchy of this physical dominance. And so that's important. And we'll come back to that a little bit later because this episode is is reinforcing this female dominance and women at the top of a hierarchy when it comes to weapons of mass. Now, Ayukawa seems initially a little impressed or maybe at least bemused by Kasuga's karate training, but he gives her a not super friendly look when she greets him, then otherwise ignores her and gets back to training. He shakes Shikaru off a little roughly here. And we can tell that Kasuga's going too hard. It's not going to end well. Ayuko even goes to Abakabu, clocks in, and talks about Kasuga with Master, which is very interesting that she's speaking to a third person about Kasuga, giving him updates and what he's doing. You can tell that Kasuga's on Ayuko's mind because she's conversing with Master about him. She can tell that is trying to impress her. Master says as much that he's concerned with Ayuko's impressions of him. This is a running concern of his. This is not something that should be news to Ayukawa after he was called a kid in episode seven, the, the uh, spark-colored uh, first kiss episode. He objected, Kasuga, that is, objected so strongly to being called a kid, a little boy. And and the idea that Ayukawa thought of him as a little boy or just a kid tore him up. That's the one thing that gets to Kasuka worse than anything else. So, of course, he's very concerned with her impression of him. Master reinforces this, but I don't think Ayukawa needed him to tell, tell her that. But she also, in this moment, remembers his experience at the wrestling gym. So this confirms to Ayukawa that his behavior though strange, though erratic. Strange and erratic is kind of par for the course for Kasuga, so it's not really different than maybe any other week uh, on Orange Street. But then um, it also tells her what she needs to know about his motivation here. And and again, we're 
like full steam Kosuga logic here. He thinks that after an hour long karate class, he's going to take on the top guy. He's going to whip the sensei's ass. That doesn't happen. Also, he thinks like getting his ass royally kicked will somehow prevent his foreboding dream. Like maybe if he gets KTFO'd and wakes up a week later in the hospital on a ventilator or some shit, his foreboding dream can't come true if he's in a coma, right? On the other hand, this is evidence that he's willing completely, without hesitation, to get the shit kicked out of him if it means keeping Ayukawa interested in him. Preventing this foreboding dream is more important than getting his teeth kicked in. If you remember the previous episode, the Shikaru's transformation, when Yusaku wanted to fight him in the river over, over Shikaru, he was ready to turn tail and run. He was not interested in getting into a physical altercation with Yusaku when it came to Shikaru. But when it comes to Ayukawa, he is willing to get into a fight with a guy that Yusaku himself is afraid of. He wants to keep Ayukawa that badly. When she arrives at the hospital or the clinic, I don't know, where, where the, the nurse's station in the school, I guess they were still at school. He's in the nurse's station. When she arrives there at the nurse's clinic and sees them all bandaged up and unconscious, it's like... I don't know. I guess it's the 80s. Like, we're not going to call the hospital. Like, let's not check him for a concussion. Let's just, we're going to put a bandage on his head and eye patch, and we're going to let him um, sleep it off a little bit. Remembering Kostika's experience at the wrestling gym, remembering her previous conversation with Master a few minutes ago, she understands that Kostika basically got his ass stomped for her. She understands that was for her. And that's why Ayukawa goes in for the kiss. I mean, she even closes the blinds. She's She knows what she's doing. She closes the blinds. She doesn't want anybody to see. She makes sure to usher everybody out of the room, and she's going in for the kiss. And as big an idiot as Kasuga is, there's so much focus paid on what a moron Kasuga is. And the Kasuga logic, I, I in, even in this episode, I talked about Kasuga logic and what a dipshit he is with his Kasuga logic. He got his ass KTFO'd. But even still, it wasn't a blunder in his usual sense. It wasn't a blunder because at the end of it, Ayuko was ready to make out with him. She was going in for a full smooch on the lips. So him taking karate, him embarrassing himself, him getting his ass kicked, it's buffoonery of the highest order, but it worked. Everything he did worked to impress Ayuko. She was ready to give him a kiss and she doesn't pursue Kasuga very much. It's usually Kasuga coming after her. The idea that she's going to try and smooch him when, when he's KTFO'd maybe seems kind of convenient. She can do it and he won't remember because the CTE. But on the other hand, she's got to be feeling kind of impressed with him to want to give him a kiss in that moment. And he caught her. And he's, he's got the balls to wonder what she was really doing. Dog, your lips were two inches away from hers. She was leaning over you while you were laying in a bed. What do you think she was doing? She was getting an eyelash off of you or something? She was going for a kiss, Casca. Quit being like that. You knew it. You should have sealed the deal, my man. Two inches. All you had to do was move up. Two two little inches to meet her halfway. And you could have gotten there. You go a smooch. Can't believe it. That's the Casca logic right there. Well, you need her to hold up a sign. I'm trying to kiss you. Ridiculous, ridiculous. So next, Kurumi and Manami have 
a wrestling match. It kind of closes out the subplot of the episode where they're very interested in becoming these female wrestlers. It otherwise has nothing to do with, with Kasuga's trajectory of this episode, his motivation, uh, the resolution. It's just kind of throbbing. Mean, the, the scene is just kind of included in, and there's a purpose to it. They, they, they included it for a reason. You don't accidentally animate an entire scene and write lines for the voice actors for an entire scene, but it, it's, it's sort of an aside, but it reinforces the, the themes of the episode because um, Kurumi, of course, uses the power, the ESP power, immediately. Despite promising her father that she wouldn't, she just immediately goes for it. And somehow nobody notices that she openly used ESP to trounce her opponent without touching her. I'm calling bullshit. It's another example of uh, the authors being loose, very touch and go with the revelation of the ESP powers. I mean, the idea that she could run faster than everybody means she's obviously an Esper and they got to leave town for the last move, but here she can like turn someone upside down and bang them on their head, like do a Russian suplex on some lady that outweighs her by 50 pounds without touching her. Uh, clearly, she's just got some kind of skill. I don't know. So here is where Kasuga Takashi rescinds his, his permission. He forbids the twins from wrestling. They're busted, but in the very next moment, Takashi is manhandled by one of the female wrestlers in the club. And that's how they close the scene. And she's just completely manhandling him. Who are you? And she's got complete uh, physical dominion over Takashi in that, in that moment. And he knows it too. He starts getting all hot under the collar. So it's not a flawless victory for the older generation, the mores of the older generation. They, they sort of can put a W up on the board because he prevents them from, from uh, participating in wrestling any longer. But on the other hand, he's given a very real reminder that they're going to let him be this voice of authority. But if it really came down to physical confrontation, I don't think Takashi's walking out of there. So as I mentioned earlier, this, this episode is bookended. It's got dual bookends. The first bookend is the imagery of the stars of the Milky Way, just as in Kasuga's dream. This has been a good episode for advancing Kasuga's relationship with Ayukawa. We can see that Ayukawa has a good sense of, of um, Kasuga's motivation and why he's doing what he's doing. And it it strikes a chord. It resonates with her in the right way. She's feeling all sort of okay with Kasuga in this episode as evidenced by the very near smooch. This is also a good episode in general, at least in my opinion, for depiction of women. They're depicted as competent, confident athletes, uh, Ayukawa, Ayukawa's wrestling senpai. Hell, even Shikaru lands above all of the men, including the formidable Yusaku, on this hierarchy of physical dominance in this episode. The, the men in this episode, Kasuga Takashi, Kasuga Kyosuke, uh, Umao, they're all being uh, physically dominated by these women who are on top of this, this uh, power structure as depicted in this episode. So this seemed like a very positive depiction in that sense. And I've read some people online saying that uh, the role reversal was played for gags, but I don't, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the wimpishness of the dudes is played for gags. Like it's funny that these people that are, are meant to be these like authoritative male figures, role models, even in the case of Takashi, that, that they're undermined so readily, so handily, by the women in this episode. I don't believe 
the, the, the folks online are correct when they say that the, the, the role reversal is played for gags. I think the, the wimpishness of the men is played for gags, and I think the undermining of the traditional patriarchal power structure, I think, is played for gags, that undermining. And that undermining is, is a, a running theme in Orange Road in general um, as, as part of the counterculture theme. We do, unfortunately, never get to see Ayukawa's wish Ayukawa denies Kasuga, who's our narrator, so we as the audience are also left in the dark. We oftentimes don't know what Kasuga doesn't know due to the uh, first-person narration, the voiceover that we get from Kasuga. But she also includes, Ayukawa also includes a comment about things being best as they are currently. So the idea is that Ayukawa is sort of supporting the status quo of the triangle. She doesn't want to shake up the love triangle here in this early episode, which makes sense because, like I said, this is episode 14. We got plenty of time left to to develop, and and we don't want to uh, we don't want to rush ahead of ourselves with so many episodes left on the table. Our second bookend comes, and it's very interesting. We also see Kasuga having that morning's foreboding dream from outside of Kasuga's point of view. We see Kasuga from above, like we're watching him on a security cam or nanny cam or something like that. It's outside of his point of view. We see uh, him as he turns. You know, he's he's uh, being kind of struck by Jingaro, and he sort of turns to escape and rolls around in his sleep and winds up with his head at the the foot of the bed. At the beginning of the episode, he awakens with a start. He sits upright. He's facing Jingaro. And then he lays down. He makes his important comment about Jingaro forcing him to sleep at the foot of the bed. And then he lays his head on the pillow next to Jingaro before continuing with the rest of the episode. That's how it happens in the beginning. But at the end, we see the events play out very differently. Unlike the first time we see this scene, Kasuga doesn't sit up. He actually falls backward out of bed and then rolls into his bureau, knocking the red straw hat down and where it lands on top of his head. So this is a pretty big narrative discrepancy. Likely, it exists to make that ending photo of him with the hat kind of over his face a little bit more compelling in terms of the the composition of that artwork. But it does introduce the idea of an unreliable narrator. This is kind of a fascinating aspect of of fiction. Sometimes you see things a couple different ways, depending on who's retelling the tale. Uh, Please see uh, Kira Kurosawa's Rashomon for uh, an instance of that played out in a in a an entire film where uh, the same event is seen from different perspectives, different characters retelling the events, and they play out very differently. And the idea is that there is a subjectivity to all of our memories, all of our thoughts. They filter through our conscious and even subconscious. And we have, of course, we color our our own thoughts and our own feelings, uh, color our memories. So the idea of an unreliable narrator is possible here. Costco being our narrator via voiceover means that some of the events that we see, given that they are almost exclusively from his point of view, could be colored a little bit by his memory of those events. This is the part of the episode where I remind you that if you want to listen to more podcasts, let's say I'm running late on my episode because my voice is shot. InnerCirclePN.com, my friends, please direct your web browsers to innercirclepn.com. Check out the other podcasts in the Inner Circle Podcast Network or do yourself a real favor. Sign up for the Team Almy Studios Patreon at patreon.com slash teamalmy 
and you will have access to every episode of Shit Happens When You Party Naked. That's my other podcast. That's our flagship podcast. It's a comedy podcast. It's not a ton like this uh, podcast, but it's sort of similar. When I start making jokes on this podcast, yeah, it's like an hour of that on the, the other show. Much more profane as well, but please go check us out. Uh, Creatures of the Night is my other project, uh, my other other project, Creatures of the Night. We talk about aliens. We talk about UFOs. We talk about DMT and mushrooms and doing drugs on the beach. Uh, it's just for fun, guys. Go check out Creatures of the Night. It's got a uh, third eye tiger on the uh, on the cover art, so go check that out. I very much appreciate everybody for listening to this episode. I really, really thank you very much. I've gotten so much wonderful feedback. It's really been beautiful. I hope you guys subscribe. I hope you guys come back next week. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you guys a little treat. You guys might remember the end of this episode. Shikaru was doing a little karaoke, and she was doing a song by Matsuda Seiko. came out in 1980, I believe. The song is called Aoi Sangosho. I'm going to play for you guys. This is Orange Road adjacent. This is not this is not strictly speaking an Orange Road song, of course, because it came out in 1980, but call it Orange Road adjacent. And uh, so we'll have a little context about how bad a job Shikaru really was doing at the karaoke. Oh, what that scene.